Hello and welcome to your activities beyond the byline podcast. I am Evigori. I'm Annie Tubbs and this week we're discussing corruption. I would like to focus on corruption with all its faces. The face of foreign agents trying to influence our political system. The face of shady companies or foundations abusing public money. And this is why in the coming year, the Commission will present measures to update our legislative framework for fighting corruption. We will raise standards on offenses such as illicit enrichment, trafficking in influence, abuse of power, beyond the more classic offenses such as bribery. And we will also propose to include corruption in our human rights sanctions regime, our new tool to protect our values abroad. Mentioned President Ursula von der Leyen during her State of the Union address declaring the Commission's intentions to fight corruption. We thought it could be useful to unpick what this might mean in practice. But before that, we have to define what is described as corruption. Well, corruption is whenever someone misuses their their position of power for for their own gain. So when a politician, for example, uh, uses their power to uh, to make money for themselves, when they make the rules in a way, or where they uh, pressure other people through the political power they have into giving them money. MEP Daniel Freund is with the Green Party in the European Parliament. In the EU perspective, it's actually quite uh, quite an elusive concept, um, and which makes our lives sometimes uh, easier and, and sometimes uh, much more difficult because the the EU looks at it um, through through the lens of uh, different policy areas. Nicolas Ayosa is deputy director, head of policy and advocacy at Transparency International EU. Purely because, or one of the reasons was, is, is that uh, the competence of the union. Uh, allows the EU to act in certain fields uh, based on the treaty. Uh, and so obviously when you take a look at corruption and, and undue influence or uh, illicit enrichment or fighting uh, fraud, uh, the uh, EU has the ability to act um, a cross-sectoral approach to, to tackling corruption. Uh, and so when you take a look at, say, the conditionality regulation rule of law, it's a, it's a budget file. Yeah, and when you take a look at anti-money laundering, they consider it an economic file. Uh, when we take a look at whistleblowing protection, which I spent a long time in my life uh, dedicating to getting the directive adopted, uh, it was first an anti-corruption file, and then it was a freedom of expression file. We hear about bribery, we hear about corruption. What's the difference and how do these concepts fit together? I suppose in everyday speak refers to, in the first instance, bribing as the the act of trying to obtain an undue benefit from usually a, a public official. Robin Luff is a lawyer specialised in commercial crime and financial regulations. Uh, whereas corruption describes more the recipient, as in whether a, a government, for instance, is corrupt, and describes that that government is willing to accept personal benefit in order to exercise their public functions. Daniel, you've worked at Transparency International and you continue to be vocal about fighting corruption. Why is it important that the Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, 
announced her intentions to address corruption during the State of the Union address. Corruption is is one of the big challenges of our time uh, when large sums of money are, are stolen, uh, particularly from, from public budgets. It, it erodes trust in, in our political system, in our democracy. So it's, it's important that we prevent that. Otherwise, I, I fear citizens will no longer trust the European Union. And Daniel, you have set up an intergroup of 130 MEPs in the European Parliament from different political groups, but with a common goal to fight corruption. Uh, what actions can be taken and what tools can be used? Uh, often the first thing to do is to make sure that there is transparency so that uh, corruption cases can even be emerged. It uh, also covers things like protecting journalists or uh, or NGOs that uh, that are often those that help or, or uncover corruption themselves. And then it's about making sure that when, for example, an investigative journalist has uh, uncovered a corruption case, that it can be uh, brought to justice, that um, that the justice system works properly, uh, that there is independent prosecutors, that there is independent judges that can take up uh, these cases without political interference and can make sure that corrupt people uh, end up behind bars. I'm all happy for for von der Leyen to announce uh, that uh, she is now taking the, the fight against corruption seriously. And, you know, I, I'm the first to say, you know, there is also additional tools that we could use in the fight against corruption. But I'm 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 also a bit afraid, you know, that the talk of new tools often is is meant to hide that the existing tools are actually not fully used. And there are a lot of tools uh, that the Commission, that the European Union as a whole, has at its disposal to fight corruption. Uh, the the member state where we currently have the biggest issue with corruption that is basically organized by the prime minister and the government is Hungary, and. You know, I don't want uh, this this new anti-corruption uh, initiative to take away the attention from what we already know is going on in Hungary and the tools that we have and that the Commission currently isn't fully using. And it shows that time and time again, the Commission, you know, first they delayed, now they're only using it in a very limited scope. This is not how we win the fight against corruption, neither in Hungary nor in the EU. We need to, to step our game by all means, let's create new tools, but let's also make sure, first and foremost, that we use the tools we already have. And speaking of Hungary, earlier this month, the Commission called for an estimated 7.5 billion euros in European funds to be withheld from Hungary over corruption concerns. In case of Hungary, it is a particularly tricky issue uh, because uh, the Commission and most of the EU institutions have uh, simply turned blind eye when it comes to this, uh, the corruption, even the systemic nature of corruption in Hungary, as well as the systemic breach of uh, rule of law. Joseph Peter Martin is Executive Director at the International Transparency Hungary. Now I see that there is a paradigm shift in the European Union after uh, approving the conditionality mechanism and triggering uh, this rule of law mechanism against Hungary in April of this year, uh, the Commission and the EU institutions have recognized that uh, they should do something. But why is Hungary in the center of attention? What makes corruption in this particular country different from other EU countries? 
the nature of corruption in Hungary is very particular because unlike in uh, many other countries in the European Union, uh, corruption in Hungary has become very centralized, extremely centralized. Uh, and uh, this is in connection with the very fact that the political system and also the economic system has become very centralized in Hungary. In other words, corruption has become systemic. Corruption has become the part of the political uh, regime, not a dysfunction of it, not a byproduct of the political regime. So that's why uh, in our assessment, the corruption situation has been uh, constantly uh, deteriorating in Hungary. Now, according to the Corruption Perception Index, Hungary is lagging behind the majority of EU countries, with only Bulgaria being behind it on the list. In the past 10 years, Hungary lost 12 points on the Corruption Index, something that is particularly concerning for the EU since corruption has been linked openly with the country's government. But what repercussions could this have for the country? The suspension of altogether approximately the 30% of uh, the cohesion funds, uh, is 7.5 billion uh, uh, euros in connection with Hungary, and also the funds from the reconstruction funds of, from the RRF uh, has been pending uh, uh, as well. Other countries have already got the the reconstruction fund, only Hungary uh, is the country which uh, hasn't got it uh, yet. And if there will be no agreement by uh, the beginning of December uh, in um, reconstruction fund issue between the Commission and the, and the Hungarian uh, government, then Hungary uh, can use 80-85% of this reconstruction fund. And I think uh, the Commission finally has recognized that it is, uh, that is, uh, it is important to link uh, the, the rule of law issues with the funneling uh, of, of the fund. On the other hand, the Hungarian government badly needs the European funds because otherwise the Hungarian economy uh, can uh, drift into a very dangerous situation. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agri-food podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop us a line at podcast at euractive.com. And withholding funds can be one way to fight corruption. But Robin, how would you describe the state of anti-corruption legislation across Europe and its effectiveness? What we see is that it's not so much a question of what the law says, but how vigorously it's applied and not least how much resources the police and prosecutors have to investigate these cases. Because almost invariably, they are complex and they require resources to deal with huge amounts of material and also the ability to investigate often complicated transactions that cross borders. So having not only the, frame, not only the framework and the, and the ability and the time to pursue um, 
requests for assistance across borders, um, but also the, um, should say, the tenacity and the willingness to do so. And what is the specific role of the EU? Does it have enough powers compared to member states and national law? Well, if we start at the level of legislation, the EU has a role in approximating and in some instances harmonising legislation. And so the EU can legislate minimum standards effectively that this is what needs to be prohibited across the EU, for instance. And in the field of corruption, uh, this exists, um, not least when it comes to the protection of the European Union's own resources. And I think this is also where uh, we are starting to see the EU becoming much more active, even at the level of enforcement, because um, as your listeners may or may not know, there is now um, operational, as of this year, um, the European Public Prosecutor's Office. And that is an office which is um, implanted in 22 of the 27 member states. So there are prosecutors in these jurisdictions, in these member states, which independently and, shall we say, separately from the from the, the standard prosecutors in those jurisdictions pursue only cases of fraud, but also corruption, where um, this involves offences against the EU's budget. And we are starting to see results um, in, 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 these, in these investigations with, with uh, convictions, um, not least for corruption, um, in cases which have involved, um, for instance, procurement practices where the funds would come from EU-supported programs. And Nick, what should be prioritized by the Commission at this point? Uh, Where could we see improvements? I would certainly, of course, welcome some of the commitments, um, as brief and perhaps vague as they were during the State of the Union, uh, with perhaps the accession of of including corruption in the human rights sanction regime. Uh, This is something that we had called on uh, for many years. We were unsuccessful in 2020 uh, when the EU adopted their human rights sanctions regime. And so I think this is actually quite a very important step uh, that they're taking. But again, it is just a commitment. Um, And there have been commitments from from the Commission in the past that haven't yet been followed through. Uh, for instance, in the, um, her political guidelines in 2019, uh, President-elect von der Leyen had um, indicated that she was committed to bringing forth a EU ethics body common to the three main institutions, and we are still waiting for the proposal. But what the EU should really focus on is in my humble opinion, is is not looking to always expand the toolbox to fight corruption, uh, but to focus on really utilizing the present tools, which sometimes the Commission has been uh, prone to non-use. They're very good at, at preventative measures. Uh, we welcome, of course, the rule of law annual assessment reports that have come out in the last three years. Uh, again, we are also uh, pleased that the conditionality regulation has been um, finally triggered. But there are a number of tools that the Commission, for a variety of reasons, mostly lack of political will, has simply not done um, or utilized. And so I would, I would suggest that the Commission takes a, a much more uh, robust view of what tools they have at their disposal at present that could be used to ensure that the member states are upholding the high standards to fight corruption. Thank you so much. That's really interesting. Can I just ask you to clarify on the nexus between corruption and human rights? Um, you know, for people who are not familiar with that discussion, is it possible for you to summarize it? I'm sure it's complicated, but 
that there is this nexus um, growing between uh, the two areas. And there's particular overlap um, in the discussions at an EU level in the last four to five years. Uh, and that's because, of course, is that what we see is sort of the societal impact and the violation of human rights based on the fact that uh, a society has become corrupt in certain sectors or in, in certain policies. Um, uh, and that has also expanded our work with um, other organizations, whether it be human rights organizations here um, in Brussels, uh, looking at rule of law in Hungary from a values perspective, but also from an anti-corruption perspective. Uh, it's how uh, the commission has uh, begun to view things like, as I said before, the whistleblowing directive, which traditionally had been an anti-corruption tool. Um, uh, and when it was, uh, it wasn't particularly getting the political backing to be addressed at an EU level when I first joined the office um, in 2014. And I was in a in a, a meeting arranged by the European Parliament uh, with the commission in attendance and Antoine Deltour, who you know was the, the Luxleaks whistleblower. Uh, and at the time, uh, the commission was more candid than I've ever seen perhaps an administrator be and say that uh, at the time, there was no intention of addressing whistleblowing at an EU level. There was no political will and there was no legal base. Uh, and then fast forward that, of course, to where we are today, and the, and, uh, the EU has adopted a very comprehensive directive to address whistleblowing. It's, of course, not being transposed properly in the member states, but here we are. And one of the reasons why it gained, it gained a, a lot of uh, push and power, not least because uh, the EU was able to adopt legislation based on some of the findings of huge leaks, like Panama Papers and Lux Leaks, um, but they began to look at it through a freedom of uh, expression lens, um, and that changed the dynamic politically, at least in this town. So there is this nexus. I think it's still, I, I still think it's very young, uh, but I only see it uh, uh, growing in the, in the future, at least here in, the, in, in Brussels. And uh, Robin, some people argue that lawyers facilitate corrupt practices. Uh, what is your view on this? I think it depends on what it is you're saying. Now, if you're saying that many transactions that, um, for instance, to launder the proceeds of corruption often involves setting up offshore entities um, and um, making sure that transactions to these entities go through. I think in some cases, it's probably right to say that lawyers in various jurisdictions, not only in the EU, but obviously in the, in the jurisdictions where the offshore entities are incorporated, uh, need to be involved um, at some level. And it may be, that lawyers, um, like, like any other um, individuals involved in this chain, be that financial advisors, um, accountants, etc., um, in some, some individual lawyers um, perhaps do not exercise sufficient diligence in what they're doing, um, and in some circumstances can even be said to turn a blind eye. If we're looking at lawyers within the EU specifically, I would be very much, as in I would reject any suggestions that lawyers generally um, act in this way. Having practiced in many fields, in many contexts, with many colleagues from many different jurisdictions, um, I can say without any doubt or any hesitation that lawyer, the vast majority of lawyers execute their, their function with integrity um, in a way that in most instances serve to prevent corrupt practices from occurring. But I obviously I can't say that individual lawyers don't in certain circumstances um, act in ways which facilitate corrupt practices. 
The topic is now on the table and it seems that the wind is blowing towards a different direction. Nick, how do you see the situation panning out? The political will in town has been uh, quite encouraging to not only recognize uh, the harm economically, socially, uh, corruption does to a society, but the willingness to uh, at least start to take steps to definitively address that. Um, and in the last four to five years for a, a number of different factors, that has only um, that has only increased. Uh, again, we are we are entering an, an, an interesting time, approaching a, a year election, and so uh, in the first instance, we'd like to see the commitments being made come to fruition, and we'd like to see the next commission um, and the parliament uh, further put this on the political agenda. Uh, and I think there are a number of ways they could do that to 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 help the situation in the member states. And Joseph, what is your take on this? Well, uh, I think we are at turning point now. Turning point, uh, at least in two uh, uh, respects. One respect is uh, that there has been a paradigm shift in the European Union because the uh, European Commission has finally recognized that it is important to, to counter the systemic breach of rule of law and to fight against corruption. Uh, uh, on the other hand, there is a turning point because uh, the Hungarian economy is in a very dire strait. And uh, if, uh, if the Hungarian government does not get the cohesion funds and the reconstruction fund, then uh, the Hungarian uh, economy can drift into a very dangerous uh, uh, situation. So now, from point of view of the fight against corruption, there is a window of opportunity uh, because uh, the, the Hungarian government has been um, uh, obliged to give some con uh, concessions uh, to the European Union. And uh, in the past week, uh, uh, the Hungarian government uh, uh, announced 17 me uh, measures uh, in order to, to, to fight corruption and in order to restore the rule of law. But to, do not misunderstand me. I am not, uh, um, uh, let's say, I'm not... Uh, uh, very optimistic, <laughs> because uh, because on the other hand, these measures uh, have been too late. Thank you very much. I am Evikyori. And I'm Annie Tubbs. And this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv for the latest news. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening. 